The following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Welcome, everybody, to this introductory course on the Introduction to Gnostic Studies, specifically the second in this series on Kabbalah. We discussed Kabbalah, the yoga of the West. We emphasize that the tradition of Kabbalah itself is more than a corpus of books. It is actually a very profound practice, discipline, and meditative science. It is a way of acquiring information from our full conscious potential. It is not merely the study of ancient scripture from Judaism. It is actually a very profound functionalism of our being. We explain that Kabbalah, while a tradition, is also the method of acquiring new information for ourselves. This is primarily achieved through meditation. We explain that Kabbalah is real meditation. Meditation is the science of acquiring new information beyond the senses by suspending our thoughts, our surging emotions, our body, relaxing deeply. We can awaken the consciousness and perceive within through visions divine truths, mystical experiences. The word kabel means from Hebrew to receive. It is what we receive in meditation in its most fundamental sense. Therefore, based on this, you can see that Kabbalah is a very beautiful dynamic thing. It is not merely found within one culture, within one particular religion. It is actually universal. And as you see in this image, we find the famous tree of life mentioned in the book of Genesis. While this is profoundly Jewish, in truth, it is also universal. What is beautiful about Kabbalah, the Jewish tradition, is that they codified a map. They provided symbols in a very unique way to show us the way of awakening consciousness within ourselves. They also described through their stories and narratives, their myths, 
the fundamental drama of the soul, how we aspire towards divinity and must overcome the obstacles that we face within our own very being. This tree of life, this map of consciousness is also a map of divine life. It represents dimensionality, states of being, qualities of mind. It represents the totality of who and what we are and where we experience mystical states, such as within meditation, when the body is calm, and when the consciousness can escape its prison, its own conditions. The purpose of this lecture in particular is to build off this prior understanding that Kabbalah is knowledge we receive within meditation. It is how the soul, our consciousness, learns to receive wisdom from the spirit. By this term, we mean in a very definitive way, divinity. The spirit is divinity. It is that which does not mix with anything impure within our own mind stream. It is something very divine. And so we seek to actualize a deep relationship with divinity. We want to know divinity for ourselves. And that is really what why we study Kabbalah, because it's a map of where to go in our work, what to change in ourselves, so that we can understand this mystical truth in ourselves, but also overcome the causes of suffering within our within our very uh, daily life. So our purpose in this particular lecture is to dive a bit into some of the traditions. So in the first lecture, we talked about some practical components, how to meditate, how to acquire information beyond our senses, beyond our thoughts, beyond sensations, beyond limitations. What we'll do today is we'll examine a couple aspects of the uh, tradition of Judaism itself, especially the mystical Kabbalah, in relation to three forms of knowledge. We're going to examine how religion is structured, primarily in three levels, introductory, intermediate, and advanced. All religions have this structure. They teach their neophytes, whether they're new to any religion, how to begin practicing a spiritual life, an ethical way of being. They also teach intermediate practices for people who are much more responsible with their own mind and their behavior, their ethical caliber. Advanced forms of knowledge are also taught, especially within Kabbalah, Judaism. And it's very well known that Kabbalah is the internal or esoteric aspect of the Jewish tradition. We'll talk about some scriptures related to that very high form of knowledge, and we'll bridge it with some explanations of some of the prior stages that build up to it. We'll also talk about the nature of Jewish doctrine and how while a Jewish tradition, it is also a universal path. This information is useful for everyone. It is not merely limited to any particular group. It is a doctrine or teaching that is universal. It is spiritual and belongs to all of humanity. We also look at the scriptures, practices, and traditions that really once embodied the spirit of real initiation. We'll talk about what that initiation is like. What is spiritual initiation? How does it apply to Kabbalah? And we'll talk about some practices and scriptures and 
aspects of the Jewish faith that can inform our own understanding of who we are. Lastly, we'll dive into mystical interpretation. The need for really extracting the spirit of the letter. Not merely to believe in it, but to dive deep into any scripture, whether it's Jewish, Buddhist, Christian, Muslim, in order to extract the real essence of what this teaching or what religion is trying to convey. So why study, uh, study Kabbalah? What's very beautiful about Jewish mysticism is that it's a very concrete way of studying our own mind. It's a spiritual language. It is a mystical grammar. Kabbalah, as emphasized within the Tree of Life and many of its symbols and and stories and narratives and myths convey in a, in a symbolic way, through parable, through allegory, higher truths. These truths come from divinity, not merely from the world of matter, energy, and action, from the physical world, but from internal worlds. We know these internal worlds when we dream. However, because our consciousness is very limited in its scope, because it's untrained, we go to sleep at night, we dream maybe for eight hours, we see nothing perhaps, and we come back to our, you know, our bed, awakening from sleep without any type of real awareness or understanding. We may forget our dreams, we may not remember them clearly, we may have vague fragments of what we were doing when we were dreaming. But in some cases, with some exceptions, we might suddenly awaken lucidly within a dream. We realize that we are no longer dreaming. We're no longer in our physical body. We are awake in the higher worlds. We go there every time we sleep. This is a very different type of perception than common dreams. It's more than just a lucid dream. It's a vision. It is possible in the dream state to experience really the reality of divinity. And that all the symbols of different traditions and religions, especially Judaism, are precisely symbols encoding these types of truths. So no matter the religion, no matter the symbol, those are concrete forms that divinity takes on within visions, within dreams, to teach us something. And therefore, all the beautiful examples of all traditions, and especially Judaism, are a conveyance of that intuitional and spiritual teaching. Divinity having no form takes on forms to teach us. So with meditation and through exercises like dream yoga, astral travel, astral projection, we can learn to gain more knowledge from the internal worlds. And Kabbalah as a tradition, especially from ancient scriptures, can teach us how to understand our dreams as a very practical import for us. We also study Kabbalah because it is the basis of Christianity. It's very fundamental. The basic story of Judeo-Christianity and Islam as well is that in the Garden of Eden existed two trees, the tree of life, which is known as Kabbalah, and the tree of knowledge, which is known as alchemy. Kabbalah, the tree of life, as a symbol, is the basis of Christianity. We know that Jesus is and was a rabbi. 
He was a master of Israel, and he knew all the Jewish teachings in depth. He taught Kabbalah in secret. This is uh, sometimes something that maybe scholars would not accept because fundamentally they believe that Kabbalah came from 12th and 13th century Spain and southern France. This is primarily because what documents we do have of the Kabbalistic tradition that have been preserved and maintained come from that region and that time period, especially through the writings of the Zohar, which we'll talk about. But it's also really fundamental to understand that Kabbalah is eternal. It predates every religion, and yet it is also the origin of all religions. This might seem unusual, but here we mentioned that Kabbalah is really, in its essence, a series of principles. These are symbols. These are laws. The tree of life, as I said, is a map of the universe. All of the laws of the universe exist before, now, and in the future. These are eternal. They've always existed. Divinity has always existed. However, really uh, how those laws and teachings have manifested within diverse uh, teachings or prophets or, uni or universes or religions may be unique to the uh, prophets or teachers who are conveying them. Every culture receives its knowledge and wisdom. And Kabbalah is no different. Now, we study this tradition in particular because it is very uh, unique and simplified and helps us to understand very abstract concepts. But really, it's eternal. Just in the same sense that uh, Sir Isaac Newton did not invent gravity, likewise, the Jewish mystics did not invent Kabbalah. They merely were a vehicle for which that universal truth could be expressed codified, documented. So we use the 12th and 13th century documents, the Zohar, the scriptures to understand really all religions because they all come from the same source. We also study Kabbalah because tradition really when it is divorced from its own roots is something dead. And this is something very painful to say because we look at many traditions in the world, many religions, Judaism, Christianity, many faiths. And as we begin to really work on ourselves and experience what these religions are teaching in their depth, we find that many of the traditions are, are divorced. They're separate or distant from their origins. We know this very easily from the news in terms of the state of many religions today, many of the abuses, the betrayals, et cetera, the, the crimes or the or the controversies, those traditions once inherited beautiful teachings, but when they lose the heart essence of how to meditate and experience these things from for ourselves, really traditions can die. They have a they're born, they have their life, and then they pass. This has happened with every tradition, and really tradition in itself can be useful for understanding many principles, but they can get adulterated and corrupted. So we always want to go back to the root of religion and Kabbalah can teach us how to understand the roots of religion, especially when we know how to experience it. More importantly, when religion becomes impractical, when it no longer helps us to eliminate the causes of suffering, 
if it doesn't help us reduce our pain, if it doesn't really change us fundamentally, that religion is dead. It's no longer useful. And by saying this, it's evident that when we look at many religions today, they've lost the method of practicality, how to really, really witness these things internally to experience it. So we have to ask ourselves this question, you know, and Kabbalah can really, if we study the roots of this faith, it can help us really understand a lot of things, help us go to the core of um, our own practice. This is why Dion Fortune in the mystical Kabbalah, who was a Western esoteric writer, explained that Christianity without its roots is really a dead thing. Merely blind faith or blind belief without evidence is the fault of modern Christianity. And Kabbalah can help us to understand many of the symbols in the Christian faith because Christianity is embedded within Judaism. And Judaism, its heart is Kabbalah, the esoteric tradition. The Kabbalistic cosmology is the Christian gnosis. Without it, we have an incomplete system in our religion. And it is this incomplete system which has been the weakness of Christianity. So this is one reason why we study Kabbalah too, is you know this tree of life, this map of dimensions and levels of being can help us understand what Christ and the Gospels was teaching. Because he used the same language, the same symbols, the same parables. And speaking of which, we have a verse from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 10 through 13, where he speaks very openly to his initiates. Jesus was explaining to his disciples that to some people he spoke in parables and others to his main disciples with greater directness because students have different levels of capacity. Some need milk. Some are babies. Some need meat. To use the extended metaphor from the epistles, I believe, of uh, the doctrine of St. Paul. It's not appropriate to give a baby a steak, neither a grown man a bottle of milk. And in the same way, Kabbalah is real meat, substance, sustenance. It is fire. It is a deep and dense doctrine with a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom. But... It was only given to those in the past who were responsible because some would get indigestion. If you give food that is not palatable to a particular person, they will get sick. And in many ways, this is why Kabbalah was very well conserved and preserved among initiates because it's dense. Many people would not take advantage of it well. And so this is why Jesus in the gospel spoke in parables to those who were not responsible yet. And as for initiates, he spoke in a way that even though he was symbolic or abstract, the intuitive ones would know the meaning, the spirit of the word, the spirit of the doctrine. Really, a true initiate, someone who knows the mysteries from experience, understands that the spirit of a given thing is, is really profound and goes beyond literal meaning. Kabbalah really, in essence, is the spirit of scripture. Kabbalah also is a language of dreams, which is why Samal and Vior mentioned that Kabbalah teaches us how to navigate the internal worlds. We need to know the language. 
Christ said, or the gospel state, and the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. This is known as the Matthew principle, which is considered very harsh. Obviously, you find it reflected. Some people have mentioned it in relation to economics or politics, about the nature of inequality and the, and the fact that those who have are given more and those who have nothing are given or lose even what they have. There are levels of application to this principle, but more importantly, in terms of spiritual reality, those who have, who possess real knowledge, who know how to experience the heart of a given thing, they will attract more. They will know more. They will strive for deeper inner wisdom. They meditate and they learn to know these higher worlds for themselves because they're disciplined. But many of these truths are not palatable and therefore they're conveyed through parables because it's written in code. We know Kabbalah, we can interpret the code and really go deep. But many times these initiates spoke in parables because like Christ, or better said, like many other initiates, they sought to evade persecution for their knowledge. Therefore, this is why this wisdom was conveyed through symbols. But also symbols are much more dynamic than literal words. They teach very profound principles. A symbol can convey many truths on many dimensions and many levels all at once, which is why Kabbalah is very useful for understanding dreams. Now, let's talk about the principles of Kabbalah because there are three aspects of religion. And really, Kabbalah relates to all three aspects of religion. We have the body, the soul, and the spirit. The body of the doctrine known, is known as the introductory level of spiritual studies. The Hebrew word for body is goof. The intermediate level of religion the middle ground, for those who are much more defined and serious, we have the soul, nefesh. And lastly, we have the advanced knowledge, which is ruach, spirit. Kabbalah relates to all three aspects of religion. What we call the body refers to basic level ethics. Be compassionate, be kind, be considerate, be patient, restrain anger, practice chastity, Conserve your sexual energy. Be pure in body, mind, and heart. Be ethical. Be a good person. Sacrifice your own needs for those of others. These are all stipulated within different religious commandments, like we see with Moses here. The Ten Commandments, which on a basic level are observations, or better said, observances that people practice in order to be a stable human being. Basically, the ethical level of religion teaches how to be stable in mind, heart, and body. People who are not ethical, who are cruel, who feed their anger, cannot calm their mind. They can't sit still even for a minute 
And therefore, if they cannot sit still, if their mind is all over the place, if their heart is surging with pain, filled with remorse for wrong action, that consciousness, that soul cannot perceive clearly within themselves. It's like you have a jar of water with mud, rock, and sediment in it. If you're shaking it all the time, if you're agitated, if you're if you're really identified with your situations in the external world, you get shook up. And what happens is that the contents of the jar become very obscured. You can't see clearly. Introductory ethics of any religion, like the beginning of Kabbalah or Judaism, is supposed to help us develop enough discipline to be stable, be calm, so that we can reflect within. Without these basic ethics, without following these basic principles, it's impossible to go into any real depth of Kabbalah. It's impossible to really understand and experience what these higher levels of knowledge are teaching because there's no foundation. The foundation of soul and spirit is the body, which is why in every religion you have the body of doctrine elaborated through many scriptures. Now, the soul is very interesting because in terms of the intermediate level of knowledge, we have the virtue of compassion. This is the level of religion in which someone who's been practicing ethics for quite a long time is really making headway in themselves to be a better person, to be more psychologically pure, concentrated, stable, serene of mind. They're able to develop their religious practice for alleviating the suffering of others. This is when one's spirituality is not based in oneself. It's no longer about how do I reduce my pain? It's more about how do I help humanity? How do I be really a asset and a bridge over a deep and dark abyss? How do I carry others over from the shore of suffering to the, really, the regions of the heights? This is when the soul is no longer considering itself, but is really eliminating selfishness and working to help others. This is when we really work with soul, the soul of religion. Work with divine love for, for others. But even beyond that, there's more depth because compassion is not the end. Really, there's advanced wisdom. The word wisdom comes from wisdom, the power to perceive. Real vision. This is a level of religion in which one is no longer a believer. One is merely um, a practitioner, but humbly learning to experience higher truths and higher realities, like through dream yoga or astral projection, higher states of consciousness. These are things that are very concrete and real, more real than the physical world. But that level of vision has to be cultivated very patiently over many years. And it's impossible to really access real profound insight if we lack compassion. And we will never develop compassion if we are not working in ethics. So Kabbalah, the, as a tradition, is based on the spirit of the doctrine. But that spirit cannot act within any individual unless the prior requisites are fulfilled, which is why every religion follows these steps in different ways. Introductory, intermediate, advanced. This also brings us to a, the understanding of levels of, of interpretation of religion. Because there are levels of instruction for different levels and classes of students. There are also levels of interpretation. 
We can say that everybody interprets scriptures according to their own level. This is very obvious. Well, it may not be obvious because some people are so attached to their own interpretation that they may not see other nuances or other possibilities. Now, obviously, our level of being determines what we see, what we take out from scripture. Because some people can read the Bible or the Old Testament, the Tanakh, which is a, con a collection of uh, the Hebrew scriptures themselves, which are the Torah, the five five books of Moses, the, the Nevim, the prophets, and Ketuvim, which is the, the writings. Those are all very beautiful teachings in religion, in these scriptures that are very deep. And many people can extract wisdom from them. But obviously, we will perceive what we are capable of seeing. Now, one thing I'll mention in terms of Hebrew scripture to really delve deep into interpreting it, we should have some basic knowledge of the Hebrew letters. We don't need to speak or uh, know Hebrew fluently, but we should have a basic knowledge of what the Hebrew letters represent. Also, because each letter in the Hebrew alphabet teaches you know, principles that are related to uh, many of the spiritual aspects of the doctrine. We'll go into that a little bit later. But the thing to remember is that there are levels of interpretation. People who are attached to the body of the doctrine, maybe they read the Old Testament, they have an ethical or moral sense of religion because they learn ethics and morality from the scriptures. And they get a lot of benefit from it. It's good. But there's deeper levels, deeper realities. There are psychological relating to the soul and mind and philosophical teachings related to scripture. All the narratives and stories of the Bible teach ethical, moral, psychological, philosophical truths. This has been very well expounded upon by many people. But what people do not also understand is that there is a real spiritual and more importantly, initiatic interpretation. This is where the study of Kabbalah is very interesting. It's very necessary to know what each Hebrew letter represents. Each Hebrew letter represents a principle, a force, a number, a truth. They even relate to the tarot cards, like the eternal tarot pro provided by Glorian Publishing. And knowing the Hebrew letters and their combinations, which is the study of, we could say, um, the Kabbalah or a subset of Kabbalah, we can understand really what the original Hebrew is trying to convey and arrive at very different interpretations that are really accepted or recognized by mainstream people. So how do we arrive at that type of knowledge? It's not enough to study. We have to experience. If we want to understand scripture more deeply, we more importantly have to transform our level of being because our level of being determines what we perceive. Right? Some people are in the body of the doctrine. Some people have more of a philosophical or psychological sense of their traditions, but initiates have a very different level of interpretation, which many of these initiatic interpretations contradict what people accept to be the norm or what the scriptures are teaching. However, what's very really unique about initiatic interpretations is that really while they contradict much of conventional wisdom, they also inform the basis upon which that conventional wisdom is even established. It's a weird dynamic because Really, the highest levels of understanding or the spiritual meaning of scripture does not contradict 
what the scripture is teaching. The body needs to be there. The soul inhabits it. And the spirit can incarnate within our understanding, metaphorically speaking, when we meditate. All three levels of religion are there. However, it's important to really be open to the possibility that our level of knowledge may be limited and to investigate, see what's there. But this is the basis of spiritual interpretation, mystical interpretation. Now, it's important to uh, think that in terms of the body, soul, and spirit of Judaism, really, there are three sacred books, according to Salman Vior. He mentions that these three scriptures within Judaism really encode and basically represent the body, the soul, and the spirit of Judaism. I'll mention what he said here. The Jews had three sacred books. The first is the body of the doctrine. That is to say, the Bible. The second is the soul of the doctrine, the Talmud, where the national Jewish soul is. The third is the spirit of the doctrine, the Zohar, where the entire rabbinical Kabbalah is. The Bible, the body of doctrine, is written in code. Thus, if we want to study the Bible by combining verses, we will proceed in an ignorant, empirical, and absurd manner. We find the key to interpret the Bible only in the third book, in the Zohar, written by Simon ben Yochai, the great enlightened rabbi. This is from a lecture called The Chemical Symbolism of the, of the Nativity of Christ. This is very interesting because a lot of people, while they learn from the Bible as a historical document or believe it to be a historical document, they don't understand that it's written in code. And therefore, to want to interpret the Bible or the body of the doctrine without its soul or spirit can lead to inconsistencies, which is why many people outright, outright reject the Bible because they don't understand. They don't see the sense in it. They don't see the thread. There's too many seemingly disparate, contradicting verses, things that don't make sense, things that don't line up. And therefore, in the confusion, one says, this is just gibberish. Some people outright reject religion for this reason. They don't understand that it's written in code and that we can make sense of the code if we study the body of the doctrine in accordance with the spirit, really, which is the Kabbalah which is um, codified within the corpus of the Zohar. So to build on this, we can say that there are three really profound or great books of Kabbalah itself. We have the Sefer Yetzirah, the Sefer HaZohar, and the Book of Revelations. Now it's good to emphasize again that you know, Kabbalah, the tradition itself, is not merely limited to 12th and 13th century Spain and southern France. As I said, this knowledge is eternal. It's universal. This wisdom comes from the higher worlds. All scriptures have their origin within the superior dimensions of nature, which we can access when we dream. Now, it's important to understand, too, that these scriptures, these mystical books before they're written physically, have their existence in the internal worlds. They are really, you know, have a divine origin. They're sacred. 
a lot of the Kabbalists too also claim that their writings come from antiquity. Many of them say that the Zohar is a very ancient text. It comes from even before the times of Jesus. Some on VR even made a statement, which scholars just outright reject or would outright reject, that the Zohar was studied by Jesus. And this would confuse some people, right? I mean, the Zohar was written supposedly in 12th century Spain and southern France under the pen name of uh, Simon ben Yochai. Um, interesting, right? But the reality is that the Zohar, like the Quran or the Bible or any scripture, is an eternal truth within the higher dimensions. They exist before they materialize, meaning before certain prophets or initiates having studied them internally, codify them within the physical world. I believe there's even a verse in the Quran which mentions this, that the Quran was really originated from what is known as the mother of the book, a scripture read by angels. Very deep. Now, the difference being these scriptures don't have the same forms as we see physically. Obviously, they're different. You may see them in the form of images. Like you open up a book, in the astral dimension. And instead of seeing script or verses, you will see living images and dramas, things that are very real. Salman Vyar mentioned that a group of, I believe, Native Americans or, or I believe some individuals from uh, Latin America had read his books, even though they were illiterate. They read them in the internal worlds because they exist internally before they manifest physically, before they're written down. This explains the eternality of these higher principles. Now, with the three greatest books of Kabbalism, the thing to remember is that really, um, the, these three books are the most profound. They're also the most difficult to read. And the reason why they've suffered less editing and redaction and other corruptions and things like that is because their symbols and language is so dense, it's so abstract that most people don't understand them. So they don't know what to censor or cipher much of this symbolism is very potent and therefore it's less adulterated now especially if you read the such as a scripture like the book of revelations which many people just don't know how to make sense of however when we know the language of kabbalah we can unpack their meaning so really the greatest spiritual works are symbolic they, they are living dramas within the higher dimensions. Now, they're also written in code and symbols, many in a allegorical or parabolic form in written word, because the initiates wanted to preserve and conserve their meaning without being censored or persecuted. Here's what Manly P. Hall had to say about the origin of these three great books of Kabbalah, the Sefer Yetzirah, the Sefer HaZohar, and the Book of Revelation. According to Elephas Levi, the three greatest books of Kabbalism are the Sefer Yetzirah, the Book of Formation, the Sefer HaZohar, the Book of Splendor, and the, uh, and the Apocalypse, the Book of Revelation. The dates of the writing of these books are by no means thoroughly established. Kabbalists declare that the Sefer Yetzirah was written by Abraham. Although it is by far the oldest of the Kabbalistic books, it was probably from the pen of Rabbi Akiba at AD 120. So this verifies, again, the temporality or the historicity of these scriptures, because obviously we have documents and uh, documentation and research from scholars that say certain scriptures were written at a certain period. Some of these scriptures were written at a 
definite time in history. We are able to verify that through, through research. However, the thing we that scholars don't anticipate or know is that that knowledge comes from the higher worlds and that these initiates would meditate very deeply and then they would learn to convey that wisdom within from their meditations into the written word. Therefore, they became the vehicle of that scripture. It's very beautiful, very profound. So in relation to these scriptures, especially the Zohar, I want to relate a couple of verses that emphasize some of the points I've been trying to elaborate upon. So in the Sefer, uh, really the Sefer uh, HaZohar, the Book of Splendor, we find a verse from Rabbi Simeon ben Yochai, where he explains how the Old Testament or the body of the doctrine is symbolic. In reality, the body of the doctrine, the Torah, is not merely a story of history. It's a encoded language about the path of spiritual initiation. I'll read it for you in depth. This is from the Zohar. Rabbi Simeon says, Woe to the man who says that the Torah came to relate stories, simply and plainly, and simpleton tales about Esau and Laban and the like. If it was so, even at the present day, we could produce a Torah from simplistic matters, and perhaps even nicer ones than those. If the Torah came to exemplify worldly matters, even the rulers of the world have among them things that are superior. If so, let us follow them and produce them from them a Torah in the same manner. It must be that all items in the Torah are of a superior nature and are uppermost secrets. This is very beautiful. I mean, very simple, but he's saying basically that these stories from the Bible are not simpleton tales. They're not meant to just entertain people. And if they were, basically... Anyone could pick up a pen and write a better story, right? I mean, the reality is that these are not simple tales. They're very deep. They're very complex. They're very rich. The reality is that the outward form is illusory. If we merely look at the literal meaning, we will not arrive at the spirit. The spirit of the doctrine gives life. Meaning when we understand some of maybe the Hebrew letters or what, Certain characters represent archetypally what the dramas are conveying in terms of a personal narrative and drama of the soul. We get real insight because these stories are not merely representations of things of the past. They are representations of what we are facing now in our spiritual life. And they're very beautiful. They're very accurate. The body of the scripture is dead, whereas the spirit of the letter resuscitates. The dead letter kills many people because those who are merely fascinated with externals don't go deeper than that. But the reality is that the Torah, as the Zohar teaches, are symbols of very divine, superior natures, have uppermost secrets. But the truth is that, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately too, I mean, these symbols were given in a way that would not get so perhaps corrupted to the point that we would lose all their value. Now, obviously, the Bible and many old scriptures are adulterated. They're highly redacted and edited by multiple people throughout centuries. And so the form of the Bible that we have today is something very corrupt. This does not mean that there is no value to be found in the Bible. 
We have to learn how to be educated readers, to be informed, and to have our discipline and spiritual practice very well refined so that when we approach these scriptures, we can take advantage of what's there. The reality is that the Bible and all these scriptures was given in a symbolic way because really if we, at that time, in the ancient past, if divinity spoke directly to people, really it would uh, be too much. People cannot digest it. Even though we live now in an information era where this knowledge is openly available, people still have a very tough time even first being interested and second when hearing about it even wanting to address it, wanting to acknowledge it, wanting to test it, wanting to study it, wanting to investigate it. And more importantly, it's even more difficult to experience it. So there's a lot of obstacles. Now, obviously, as the Zahar teaches, these symbols or these scriptures came into being because, or were written in such a way to hide these truths because humanity doesn't like the knowledge. It runs contrary to really our, our, our desires, what we want. The reason why religions have become adulterated is because people modify what they don't like. And therefore, the message over the centuries gets diluted. Here is what the Zohar taught. Come and behold, the world above and the world below are measured with one scale. The children of Israel below correspond to the lofty angels above. It is written about the lofty angels who makes the winds his messengers. Psalms 104 verse 4. When they descend downwards, they are donned with the vestments of this world. If they had not acquired the dress for this world, they would not be able to exist in this world, and the world would not be able to stand them. And if this is so for the angels, how much more so it is for the Torah that created these messengers in all the worlds that exist due to her. Once it was brought down to this world, if it had not donned all these coverings, garments, covering garments of this world, which are the stories and simplistic tales, the world would not have been able to tolerate it. It's very beautiful. This is even conveying how this higher knowledge comes from the internal worlds. And later the messengers or prophets convey them in accordance with the cu culture, the language, the customs, the symbols, the narratives, the dramas, the stories, the um, interactions of this world. Otherwise, people would not be able to even approach it. They couldn't address it. They couldn't consume it. They couldn't masticate it, digest it. It's profound. So there, it's out of compassion and mercy that we have the body of the doctrine, that it's given in such a way in code because even when speaking very directly, people can't handle it. People are too invested in desire. People really do not like genuine religion. It's very difficult runs contrary to our best interests, our most preserved and, you know, cherished sense of self. So this is why we have to really learn to practice what these teachings are providing. We have to experience real revelation personally, not merely hearing from what someone else said or believes in or thinks. What's, you know, what different religious teachers have taught we have to know it for ourselves here we see an image of moses moshe receiving the decalogue the ten commandments he received it on mount sinai it's a beautiful symbol how by climbing a 
path among the mountain, reaching a higher spiritual state of being, entering meditation. He was able to receive when the clouds of his mind parted and cleared a divine message in the form of a symbol, insights, spiritual experience. He receives the law, the commandments of divinity about what to do to lead Israel. Israel is a conglomeration, an acrostic. Isis Ra-El. We know that Moses, according to some writers, was a priest of Isis, was an Egyptian initiate, or knew the mysteries of Egypt in depth. It's interesting. These religions are very deeply ingrained. They're tied together. They cannot be separated. This is some of the esoteric historical you know, realities of this scripture. Now, the thing to remember is that this event on Mount Sinai is something that can repeat within any individual. It's not merely a historical moment. The spirit of that very profound, beautiful instant in which the soul receives divine knowledge from divinity, from our own inner God, that has to be repeated in us. It cannot be something dead. Like, oh, so-and-so experienced that. Okay, I'm going to believe in this tradition and follow what he wrote. It is possible for us to have that experience for ourselves. But sadly, um, honestly, very reasonably so, people who go around proclaiming their mystical visions often, you know, we question or doubt because there's a lot of craziness in the world. It's absurd, a lot of absurdities. But the thing is, by following the ethical commandments of religion, one opens the door to experiencing real revelation. So these spiritual experiences, as I was saying, do not have their limit within history. They precede any historical occurrence. There's something eternal and divine. They go beyond time. And these historical narratives of Judaism and religion are conveying these higher truths. Kabbalah, as I was saying, is also the spiritual experience of that truth within meditation that transcends time. There was a writer by the name of Gershom Sholem. He's a German-Israeli philosopher. He actually made Kabbalah very popular within academia. And while he has you know, some errors in his thinking, I personally, um, he does provide some very strong research and historical basis of understanding some of the historical aspects of Kabbalah in the tradition from 12th and 13th century Spain, which are useful or can be useful. And he made some points that I like to iterate for you that, you know, we agree with in the Gnostic tradition. He basically stated that revelation is something personal. And that the mystic is someone who closes their eyes to illusion and awakens inner reality. In that sense, they do not ignore the facts of history that there were prophets who taught these truths. But more importantly, the emphasis is to have that experience for ourselves. So that this, the dead religion becomes something vivified, real, spiritual. He says this, Revelation, for instance, is to the mystic not only a definite historical occurrence, which at a given moment in history puts an end to any further direct relation between mankind and God. With no thought of denying revelation as a fact of history, the mystic still conceives the source of religious knowledge and experience which bursts forth from his own heart as being of equal importance for the conception of religious truth. In other words, instead of the one act of revelation, 
there is a constant repetition of this act. This new revelation to himself or to his spiritual master, the mystic tries to link up with the sacred text of the old, hence the new interpretation given to the canonical text and sacred books of the great religions. So one thing uh, I will speak about or speak against in this is that, you know, part of um, part of this way of thinking is that mystics reinterpret old scriptures. What's interesting about that is that it's assuming that the real spirit or the real message is something that has a dead meaning at first or is literal at first, but then mystics later reinterpret. In reality, these scriptures or these revelations are very esoteric. They're real, deep, intuitive knowledge. The original meaning is there. However, they take forms or adopt symbols and really the real interpretation the deepest interpretation is the mystical which we access when we practice dream yoga so i wouldn't say that these interpretations are really new they're really the essential core meaning of what these teachings are providing and later people may interpret one way or the other because they don't have the senses to understand or investigate One other point he mentions in his book, Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism, that I like to emphasize is that all the narratives and situations in the Old Testament represent deep truths. So even this uh, this academic scholar ex accentuates or emphasizes the same points that we are in this tradition. Really, geography, narrative, all the historical moments within any narrative, like the like a book of Exodus, or as you see here in this image, the parting of the Red Sea, is something internal. These represent internal truths. These are not literal historical moments in the past. They might have happened, but in reality, what's really what's their application to us? What do these symbols show us about what to do in the spiritual path of initiation? We explore these symbols and understand how they relate to different parts of our spiritual path as we're meditating. Because genuine mysticism is personal experience. It's portrayed through allegory. And therefore, all these historical events are very, you know, beautiful symbols. They're very deep. Gershom Sholem says the following thing in his book. The historical aspects of religion have a meaning for the mystic chiefly as symbols of acts which he conceives as being divorced from time or constantly repeated in the soul of every man. Thus, the exodus from Egypt, the fundamental event of our history, cannot, according to the mystic, have come to pass once only and in one place. It must correspond to an event which takes place in ourselves, an exodus from the an inner Egypt in which we are all slaves. This is very eloquent, very beautiful. What I will point out, too, is that uh, for many Jews, um, much of Jewish history has been fraught with pain. And therefore, many, even in the times of 12th and 13th centuries, Spain, many of the Kabbalists felt exiled because even historically, the Jews in, um, I believe, Spain were eventually kicked out and were forced to relocate. And so they felt like they were in an inner Egypt on an even more fundamental and deeper level, spiritually speaking, all of us are in Egypt. 
We are all slaves of desire. We are all building pyramids, slaving to build a reputation, a career, an ideology, a belief, an identity. And meanwhile, we are not free. Egypt can represent many things, can represent the physical body, which keeps us enslaved to sensations, to desires. Doesn't mean we have to abandon the body, but, or give it up, but in a sense, we have to learn how to command it. The Red Sea, the waters, the exodus, the 40 years in the wilderness of life are all symbols of initiation. These are allegories of what any spiritual initiate must face in themselves if they're seriously working. All of us are in exile. We want to enter back into the kingdom of the divine. We want to escape suffering. However, the way to do it is through Moshe, Moses, who is a symbol of the soul that is mastering itself, who is a magician, a real priest. And those waters of the Red Sea represent the waters of really our desires, our appetites, our energies, which have to be tamed, but which must also part for the Israelites to cross into freedom. Those waters of ours, really our, our body, our mind, our energies have to be controlled. But we have to drown the Egyptians. Really, our own defects, pride, anger, fear, laziness, lust, all those elements that persecute any initiate who is trying to change. So these are all very beautiful allegories. I mean, this is just touching the surface. I mean, there's a lot of knowledge available from um, especially Glorian Publishing. We have some resources on our website as well, but we included a link here to uh, the topics page under Glorian Publishing for the Kabbalah. So if you're looking to understand really deeply more about the tradition of Kabbalah and how the spirit of the doctrine plays out within different scriptures, such as the Zohar, I mean, there's tons of stuff on Glorian Publishing you can study. You can really uh, dive in. Very beautiful and very deep. So at this point, we're going to open up the floor to questions. I see we have one. What would you say is the best version of the Zohar that is good value money-wise? Um, I own the Pritzker Zohar. Um, it's 12 volumes. I mean, it's quite costly, but I mean, it's like $50 or so or for each volume. So there's 12. I mean, it's quite a lot. But the thing is that the scripture is so dense that Literally, I mean, I know the lecture, one lecture from Gloran Publishing has been basically he has the first book of the Zohar and he's been quoting that book for like 15 or 20 years because it's so deep. It's just inexhaustible. Meanwhile, there's 12 volumes. Um, I just love owning the series. I mean, it's I mean, I'm hoping someday I'll be able to really explore the whole depth of the corpus. I mean, it's a whole body of literature in itself. But Pritzker Zohar is really the best that I can recommend. Uh, Daniel C. Matt, I believe, translated. And some of the other last two versions, I mean, uh, someone by the name of Wolski, I think, too. You can find it online easily. Uh, literally, I mean, it's such a dense book, too, that or dense series of books that you'll be swimming in it for years. There's a certain verse in the opening of the Zohar that literally uh, I've been... Basically, reading, I once read, I think, the first 
10 pages in the course of six months to a year, because when I was reading that scripture, I saw an, I read an experience that I had within meditation and dream yoga, and it was very powerful. So don't read those scriptures lightly, like it's a newspaper. I mean, those are scriptures that you, you read a verse and meditate for weeks, months, because it's, it's that profound. And literally there's 12 volumes of it. I mean, it's, it's huge. Some of them are like 800 pages. Um, you can read them in val. You can read them in, um, you can read them in order. Um, primarily because at least the first few volumes of the Zahar, I think like the first three are focused merely on Genesis. And then the next three or four, I mean, maybe the next three are on, uh, you know, Exodus. And likewise with the first five books of Moses, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's very, very beautiful, very profound. Um, and then some of the other later editions in that series are, um, I think, focus on miscellaneous Psalms and Proverbs, things like that. So the 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 Kabbalists, the Zohar really comments on the, the meaning of the original, basically the Old uh, Testament, but gives them a very nuanced and original interpretation. Yeah, I mean, basically it's going back to the metaphor, it's red meat. It's heavy, heavy stuff, but very profound and very rewarding if you can be patient enough to sit with it, meditate on it, extract what it means, and see how it applies to your life. If you're looking to um, really go more into depth into the Kabbalah especially, my recommendation for studying is take your time. I mean, the best way to study a scripture is to, as I said, you know, take a verse and meditate on it for, you know, meditate for, you know, a week, a month, however long it takes for you to really understand the depth of what's going on, because we don't want to just gloss over things that we don't understand. Unfortunately, that's commonly the way we read, especially as we've been taught in the West, but it's a totally different style of reading when you're meditating. You know, take a verse, meditate on it for, you know, yeah, meditate on it for as long as you need. So we have a question. What is the best way to learn the Hebrew alphabet? Study the course, The Alphabet of Kabbalah on Glorian Publishing's website. It is probably one of the most amazing courses I've heard. I really love um, the structure they give and they really go deep into what the Hebrew letters mean. And once you know the code, because the alphabet itself relates to the 22 arcana of the Torah as well, your understanding will, I mean, the connections you can make and the essence of what the Hebrew letters mean and what scriptures teach and the characters, who they are, what they represent, will become very clear. I mean, it's a very rich course. It's very dense. Uh, each Hebrew letter, which are 22, relates to the Torah cards. And there's a lot of correlations that go along with it. But yeah, study the Alphabet of Kabbalah course on Glorian. Probably one of the most rewarding courses that you could ever study, especially for Kabbalah. There's a question. Is it true that scanning a portion of the Zohar is effective to healing, protection, and so on? Personally, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't think, um, I know some people attribute a very mystical or you know, prestigious glamour to the Zohar because it really, it's, it's a, it's a body of literature in itself. It's very profound and beautiful. 
So I could see why people do idolize it perhaps to a degree, you know, as to whether it could heal, you know, spiritually, psychologically. Really, I think in my own experience, the Zohar can really, you know, protect us in this, protect us only for understanding it. Really, I mean, Salman Vera mentioned that the best weapon in life we can have against any negative influence is a correct psychological state. And if we really understand the Zohar in its depth, it'll help protect you, your mind, because it gives you insight about things that you need to work on and change. So it's the understanding that protects, honestly. And I think it's also the understanding that heals, right? I mean, literally interpreting or, you know, coming up with a hypothesis about what the scripture means, because it's very abstract. It's a very dense read. We'll not get much results in terms of maybe protection or healing. But I found that when I've really, when I've really meditated and seen a verse and perhaps certain experiences I had internally related to certain verses from the rabbis of the Zohar. It's given me a lot of inspiration and it's helped me to heal in my own path and, you know, protect my mind against regressing, right? Going back to an old way of being that could be harmful. Huh. We have a question. What's the most profound thing you've learned from the Kabbalah that I don't know much? I mean, literally, there's so much in the Zohar or the Kabbalah that, you know, I've had certain experiences, to, you know, of certain things. But the more I experience, the more I realize I don't know. So, uh, Moria in the Dayspring of Youth mentioned that this wisdom is merely the introduction to an infinite knowledge. Really, that knowledge is infinite. So as soon as we think we know something, we don't. You know, we're stuck in the past. So I guess the most important thing I learned from Kabbalah is that we have to keep learning, keep understanding, keep investigating, keep meditating. We have a question. How does the Kabbalah intersect with ritualistic energy work? In the deeper secret rites of Judaism, there have been rituals and practices that mostly kept secret and, you know, conveyed by mouth to ear and offered symbolically, teach about how to work with energy. A lot of those rituals that were never conveyed publicly, except through recently in, 1960, in the 1950s or 60s with the perfect matrimony by Salman Vior. Salman Vior mentioned that, really he explained the origins of Kabbalah, the, the real practical Kabbalah in its depth in relation to how to work with the energy of our body, with ritual. The primary ritual that he taught in that book is the perfect matrimony, is a marriage. The highest form of Kabbalah with working with the tree of life is by working in a marriage. And the greatest ritual that anyone could ever practice is, is the sexual act. Not out of impurity or desire, but with love, with chastity, with sexual conservation of the creative force. The energy which, you know, can originally give birth to a child physically can be something that is harnessed, conserved, and developed and awakened within oneself as the power of Shekinah, mentioned by the Kabbalists. This is the divine feminine, the divine mother, Kundalini. She is the power that raises the forces of Israel, the soul that is lost in Egypt, 
in order to rise up back to the origin, the source. Very deep symbol, very profound. You know, I'd say the best form of ritual energy work is the perfect matrimony. And Salman Vera explains, you know, how does Kabbalah, the tree of life, tie into working with energy? It's very beautiful and very deep. I suggest you study that book. So we have a question. How about helping humanity? What if they don't want help, if they despise divine knowledge? We always have to respect the will of others. If people are not interested, we don't have to share it with them. But if they they ask about it and they want to know, you can tell them. You know, some people don't want to be helped and we have to respect that. You know, obviously in the case of like, you know, sharing ideas or books or things that we're interested in, we always have to be mindful of other people's needs and be more intuitive about what to say. Because oftentimes it's easy, I think in the beginning for students to want to, getting so excited with this knowledge that they want to share with the whole world. And obviously that's a good inspiration, but it has to be tempered with, with prudence, you know, knowing how to really give to people what they need, not what we think they need or what we want to get by giving to them. Cause there's a, there is a pride that says, you know, I want to give other people the Kabbalah and teach them so that they respect me and they see me as this great spiritual person. And then everyone's going to worship me. You know, that's what the ego thinks, right? And unfortunately, every person who is entering a spiritual path develops that. It's just, you know, just the reality. What the solution is, is follow your heart, be intuitive, and look to understand the suffering of others. And if they really would benefit, and if there's a way that you can convey the knowledge in a, in a productive, useful, patient, and, you know, uncoercive way, then... Offer it to them. And if they don't want it, so be it. We don't have to try to convert the world. You know, we do it patiently. But I think there's a saying even in the Quran, in Surah Al-Kafirin, the unbelievers. I do not worship what you worship, neither do you worship what I worship. I do not follow what you follow, neither do you follow what I follow. Unto you your religion and unto me mine. Basic, right? Unfortunately, people don't follow that. They want to convert everybody. Everyone wants to convert everybody else. And nobody respects people's freedom. And this is unfortunate. But hopefully we won't fall into that mistake. We have a question. What is dream yoga? Dream yoga is the science of awakening consciousness in dreams. We gave a course recently on our podcast, which you can study. We'll provide the link in the chat box. Basically, it's 15 lectures about how to astral project, how to um, lucid dream, how to be aware that we're dreaming, and with many practical tools that you can follow each week or forever many times you listen, forever how many sessions, uh, you can learn to build up your, you know, yoga dream yoga stamina so that you learn to awaken in dreams, how to remember dreams, how to enter dreams consciously, how to astral project, different practices and mantras you can use. It's a very in-depth course, so we'll include in the link for you. We have a question. How does the knowledge of the Kabbalah letters, how will they be helpful if we are not at the level of understanding them yet? 
you know, it's it's a patient process. You know, there's a lot of things about Kabbalah that are very challenging for the intellect. I mean, I mean, it really tests your memory. It tests your memory. It tests your, you know, you know, your insights. And there's a lot of things and correlations and associations that are very intricate. I mean, Kabbalah can be very complicated. And I think people do get often lost in the the web rather than kind of look at the heart of what it's trying to teach. Now, in the beginning, we study Kabbalah intellectually to have a, especially um, the tree of life, to have a basic understanding of what these symbols represent so that when we experience them, we're not totally lost. You know, we'll have some kind of way to navigate them. Now, the knowledge of the, the Hebrew letters are really powerful and helpful, you know, as we're applying them, you know, I would suggest that if we're not understanding what they really mean, because it's easy to just listen to a lecture, especially like from Gordon Publishing and just like, okay, yeah, I listened to it. I think I got it. But, you know, it's really practical and very in-depth, very deep, takes a lot of uh, stu study and application. You know, it's important to apply what we learn. So if you if you don't feel like it's helpful, the study of the Hebrew letters is very, you know, as assisting you because you're not understanding the, lo the level of depth of it yet, I would just, you know, take it slow. Take your time. You know, be patient with it. Maybe study one Hebrew letter a month. You know, really go slow with it. I mean, literally, that's kind of how the lectures unfolded anyways. I mean, they took like two years to be delivered. I mean, it took a while. So if you think the knowledge is going to be easy to pick up in just, you know, two months by listening to the podcast again and again, which I don't know if this is your case, but I'm just saying the tendency for a lot of students is to just ingest, consume a lot of knowledge and try to, you know, read a lot and study a lot, but it gets hard to really understand what it means if we don't take our time to meditate. So they're helpful when we meditate on them and really sit with them for maybe like a month and just try to see where the Hebrew letters like Aleph or Bet, you know, basic beginnings apply to scripture, you know, take your time with it. They're helpful when we really understand what they mean, but the way to understand what they mean is to meditate, you know, Sit, close your eyes, relax, calm your mind, calm your heart, calm your body. Imagine the verse that you read or a part of the lecture that you listened to and ask the question, you know, my divine mother, my being, what does this mean? And hold, you know, either the image or the idea, the verse in your mind, the, the recollection and wait. You know, obviously the mind in the beginning will be in, you know, distracted and then, you know, kind of bouncing all over the place. And, you know, with the learn basic concentration for that. But, you know, suddenly when you're not thinking about it, the understanding comes when you're not trying to plan it, deliberate, associate, remember, you know, or, you know, try to, you know, intellectualize it. It just comes to you. You don't even think about it. It just arrives. And that kind of meditation can be very practical and useful. But yeah, you know, that's how, you know, take your time with it. And the deeper meanings and levels of understanding will come to you, you know, when you put your mind aside and let your heart be the one that dictates the wisdom. We have a question. In the fifth initiation of major mysteries, is that the step to incarnate Christ, therefore compassion, chokmah, wisdom? 
what is the soul of the doctrine meaning and its difference in terms of compassion that you express? So that's a good question. I mean, for those who are familiar with the writings of Samal and Vior, there's levels of initiation relating to the tree of life. So in a sense, what's very profound about the demarcation between body, soul, and spirit within religion is that it can apply to the tree of life. The lower five sephiroth of the Kabbalah, Malkut, Yesod, Hod, Netzach, and Tiferet, are the lower five bodies of the human being. You have the physical body, the vital body, the astral body, the mental body, and the causal body. You can say, in a sense, that the first five books of Moses relate to each sphere or sephirah. I believe you have uh, Malkut relating to Genesis. You have Exodus relating to Yesod. You might have, uh, I believe, Leviticus relating to Hod, Deuteronomy related to Netzach, and then Numbers relating to Tifereth. In a sense, we are living the body of the doctrine in a very deep sense when we create the solar bodies. You know, that's the beginning of initiation, right? I mean, it's the very beginning, you know. I know we look at the writings of Salman Vior or that description, and we think that's something very advanced. It's actually a very beginner level. You know, but for us who are very lost in, in general, you know, very confused and asleep, we look at these things as something very elevated or perhaps beyond our reach. But, you know, it's not it's not the case. I mean, we can we can get there, but, you know, we have to be patient. The body of the doctrine is the Torah. First five books of Moses relating to the first five sephiroth of the tree of life. You live those books in yourself as you're working with the fire of the Kundalini within those lower bodies. Now, when the really. You know, when the Christ incarnates into the human soul, that's when we start to work with, really, in a deep sense, the intermediate way. Because we're literally in Tifereth, you know, which is between the higher worlds and the lower bodies, the middle of the tree of life. In the Buddhist sense, that's Mahayana. Really, Mahayana Buddhism teaches about the incarnation of Avalokiteshvara, Chenrezeg the Christ within the heart of the Bodhisattva, the human soul. And that human soul is an initiate who incarnates Christ, who develops those solar bodies. Obviously, beyond the intermediate way are masters of Tantra, which are initiates of the spirit, those who incarnate spirit. That's on the second mountain. That's something much more elevated. You could say the intermediate way really begins, really the soul of the doctrine. We really live the soul of the doctrine when you incarnate first the soul, but also in Christ you know, to a degree. And the, you know, there's great, there's gradations. It's not like a solid, like you have to, you know, be at this level to be working with the body of the doctrine or the soul of the doctrine, you know, they all intermingle. But in, I guess in terms of correlation, you can map it out that way. The body of doctrine is the Torah. But obviously you create the soul of the doctrine as you're creating the solar bodies. And you also, when you incarnate your soul, which is in the fifth initiation of major mysteries. So there's that correlation too. But the spirit, you know, obviously the beginning of the Venusic initiations incarnates when, you know, you reach the Venusic initiation, you know, incarnate Christ. So, but obviously to perfect the spirit within requires death on the second mountain. So there's levels. Yeah. And also it relates to the direct path, you know, you take the direct path, incarnate Christ, you're working with the spirit, but as a beginner, you know, there's levels.
Yeah. So, I, you know, some people are asking questions like, are there other classes? You know, we do have online classes, but also we have a, you know, a center in Chicago. If you study our, go to our meetup, you'll see that we have one lecture coming up, you know, this Saturday too, which you can uh, attend if you're in the, if you're in town, it's going to be on the voice of the silence. Um, it's also going to dive into Kabbalah as well. You know, the seven stuff for all the seven initiations, the seven sounds. So if you go to our meetup, you'll find the, you'll find the link. I could try to post the link in the, Chat box too. Here's a question. I'm, I'm finding difficulty balancing bettering myself to help others with the betterment for others to help my true self. At times, it's difficult to tell what focus to take. Fear is often running rampant. Balance between helping another and oneself can help illuminate fear or eliminate fear, excuse me. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, when we talk about the body and the soul and the spirit of the doctrine, obviously these are, these are you know, principles. They're not necessarily plateaus. Like you got to do one perfectly before you get to the other. Like there's obviously degrees and levels. But yeah, it's a difficult balance to find that, you know, you're trying to better yourself by helping others, being compassionate. But also, you know, we want to help other people in a sense too, because, you know, if we do good for others, it also helps us. I mean, Obviously, there's there could be selfish motives in that, but in the real objective sense, you know, we can be selfless and really, you know, dedicate time and sacrifice or money to help other people, you know. And it's also difficult to realize what the focus is, you know, if you're focusing on other people to help better yourself or need to focus on your own development. Obviously, in terms of the three levels of religion, if we are perfecting our ethics. You know, especially when we're with other people. That's how we can make the most rapid change. You know, obviously, if we're alone and we have time to ourselves, you know, we can practice and dedicate ourselves to spirituality. You know, it gives us a reprieve from society to be able to focus on our inner work. But really, we develop that inner work by getting involved. You know, whether it's our job, our career, a spiritual group we attend, you know, it could be anything really, you know whatever our circumstances are. The focus is observe your mind. You know, if your fear is clouding your judgment, observe that fear. Look at it. You know, when you really balance your own psychology in relation to what's going on with the external impressions, you will clearly see what is really going on. You have to look at it, but you have to be willing to separate from the fear and understand that it's not, it's not our real identity. You know, fear is very convincing and can motivate and drive many of our actions. But if we're not looking at it, we won't see it. We have to observe. And the best way that you're going to understand your fear is, you know, getting involved, you know, have some type of activities that involve people that you can get out into the world, but also have enough balance in your life so that you can go home and meditate. Because the problem is some people are so busy helping other people that they don't take care of themselves. Or they're so concerned with themselves that they don't help other people. And, you know, it's a fine line, you know. We got to ba balance it. Got to find it. But it takes work. We have a question. It is said that Yogananda eliminated 50% of his ego without creating the solar bodies. If it is easy to create the solar bodies, then his work must be very easy to become Christ. Yes. Yes, very much so. I mean, I personally, I don't know how much Yogananda eliminated, but 
he was described as a very be beautiful elemental soul. And obviously, the more purity of consciousness one has, the easier the solar bodies will be to create. You know, actually, one will create the solar bodies even better because there's more consciousness there to do it well and also to incarnate Christ. So, yes. We have a question. Could you share your interpretation of what it means to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove? I'm going to tie it into the, you know, this lecture, especially the body, soul, and spirit. You know, when we interact with people, we have to be, you know, with wisdom, intuitive. We have to be able to understand what our heart is telling us. We have to learn to listen to the spirit of the moment. And the way that we do it is by being watchful. It could be at our jobs. It could be at our careers. It could be with our spouse. In fact, it involves all these things, all these situations. A serpent is a subtle animal that dwells in the field. And really, a field in Hebrew is Shaddai. And one of the sacred names of divinity is Shaddai. Shaddai El-Chai in Hebrew, meaning the almighty living God. There's a sexual connotation to this because a serpent in dreams relates to sexuality. It's a subtle force that hisses like fire. It's a fiery element. It's a subtle creature. It's more subtle than any beast in the Shaddai in the Bible as mentioned in, I believe, Genesis 3 verse 1. In the serpent is the creative energy. And the creative energy of sex, which can be harnessed spiritually, is what creates real wisdom, the spirit. Now, to be harmless as a dove means to know how to interact with the world. If we're working with the creative energy, we gain insight about how to navigate life. You just get intuitions about, I should say this to this person in this way or relate in this way, or do this thing, even though maybe my mind, my mind may be trying to interfere. In reality, we see the right course of action. The serpent creative energies of sex, the power of Shekinah, the divine mother, is intelligence, is Binah in Hebrew, in Kabbalah. She helps us to know how to be wise, to know how to interact with the world. And harmless means, you know, whatever interactions we have with life and people, we don't harm anyone, neither in our mind, our emotions, or our body. That's the body of the doctrine. That's the Torah, the law. But that body, our wisdom, or really the spirit, is what informs the body. Most of the time, it's the opposite. Our body has a desire, a sensation, a craving. We feed it. That's not being wise like a serpent. That's being a slave to the serpent. Whereas when you're in control of your three brains, you're observing the world, you're interacting with the world with patience, with, with compassion, with love, to the best of our ability, we learn to be harmless as a dove. And a dove is a bird of white plumage, is the Holy Spirit. That purity of being which escapes definition, which is in the moment. We have to learn to be harmless. We have to practice ahimsa, nonviolence. Not merely with the body, but with the heart with our thoughts. So that's my, that's my take. You know, obviously there's probably a lot more than that. We have a question from a previous lecture. You said that if we see a lion within our dreams, this relates to the law and being a bodhisattva. I, 
is this usually the case or some other alternative suggestion? So in a dream, a lion, the lion of Judah relates to Katansia, which is the higher law of the gods. There's the karma of normal people, you know, common day people, but then there's also the karma of initiates. A lion can represent really Christ. And to see a lion in a dream can signify that we've had some level of development in our past lives. But obviously we've fallen and we've lost that, you know, especially if the lion roars, you know, that's a very intense symbol that the law is against one oneself. It may not necessarily mean that one is a bodhisattva. I mean, maybe in your past life, you created a solar astral body or maybe a solar mental body or maybe even a solar causal body, you know, but where you left off or where you stopped is something that only you can verify. And a line mean and a line represents that, you know, you have some, or maybe in your dream that there's some connection with the higher law there, you know, but to know how far you've gone is something you have to meditate really deeply about. And, you know, that answer will unfold over many years. And, you know, if you have that experience, you know, it's not going to be pleasant, but you'll get some sense of like, you know, what is really going on here over the course of many years. We have a question. Is the Holy Spirit the expression of light from the darkness? So that means it was the Holy Spirit who said, let there be light, which created our existence. You know, the three Logoi, Keter, Hukmah, Binah, really the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, exist as one force, really in the absolute within the divine, within the cosmic, common, eternal father. But then those forces unfold in order to create the universe. The Holy Spirit really in any initiate is what creates light in the spine, in the darkness of our vertebrae within our internal bodies. So in a sense, it's also keter, yehi aor va yehi aor, let there be light. Yehi or yehida, which is the Hebrew word for let there be, and unity is a representation of the higher Sephiroth Keter. But, you know, in a sense, all three forces are working together within the initiate, but also within the absolute, whenever any universe is created. The Father is there, the Son is there, and the Holy Spirit is there. And the three work together in order to manifest. And our existence is created from the combination or will of those three. Also, our spiritual life is the manifestation of those three. Three forces, positive, negative, neutral. Man, woman, marriage, sexual act. But also within the work of alchemy too, you know, there are spiritual existence. The kundalini is risen in the spine from the darkness of our mind, from our own abyss when we pronounce mantras of light. And the Holy Spirit is the one who helps to raise that energy, raise Shekinah back up to, from exile back into Exodus, the return. I hope that answers your question. Okay. Um, any other thoughts, questions, or? You're welcome. Glad this helped. And uh, if you all got questions or, sure, we got one more. Could you talk about the rays we belong to, specifically the difference between Mars and Jupiter? I know we have to get the answer from within, but I cannot, with all the effort, 
to tell if I have five or six traverse lines. Any clarification? Yeah, this is this is fun. Um, I mean, um, someone Vera mentions that you know there are seven spiritual rays that relate to our being and our inner divinity manifests in one of the seven rays. These seven rays relate to planetary influences, but also spiritual influences. They're codified or described as the ray of the moon, Mercury, Venus, Sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Mars is related to war. It's governed by the angel Samael. So if our being relates to the way of Mars, our spirit will be a warrior. Now, the ray of Mars relates more to like karma, the lords of destiny, instruction, spiritual warfare, spiritual defense, inner strength. Jupiter relates more to politics, like relating to interrelations with people, like in society or courts. Um, yeah, the ray of Jupiter is like the regal or the royal king, whereas Mars is the warrior. It's interesting, right? I mean, Jupiter can relate more to a spiritual influence that can help one really navigate personal situations very well. Mars is merely is like the, the warrior who can endure the worst to fight compassionately for what is right. And, you know, you may not be able to tell by looking at your forehead, you know, some of us have are much older than everyone else and we may have more wrinkles and lines. So we don't know what Ray we're from unless you go internally and have the experience where, you know, you're shown your inner being and what Ray he is from, you know, that's something that you can learn to experience. You know, be patient. You know, it'll come to you if you're patient, but also sometimes it may happen. It might happen without you even asking for it. But I suggest that if you really want to investigate it, meditate every day, fall asleep and ask until you get your answer. Okay. Um, I think that's you know, about time. Uh, any other thoughts? You know, we'll conclude. So I thank you all for attending and uh, we'll have this lecture up on the podcast in case you want to re-listen or access it. There will be a future lecture in relation to, uh, as a sequel to this lecture. So the previous one was Kabbalah Yoga of the West. Uh, the next one will be related to um, more of the tradition in relation to the five aspects of medieval Judaism, especially uh, Agadah, narrative tradition, uh, Halakha, which is Jewish law, Piyot, which is liturgical poetry, uh, Merkava mysticism, and then lastly, the Sefer Yetzirah. We'll talk about how these practical aspects of Kabbalah can be worked with in our initiatic work. So I thank you all for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at chicagognosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.